Some of the more interesting assignments I've had in recent years have been in the United Nations peacekeeping missions, most recently in South Sudan uh, three or four times, and in the Central African Republic a few months ago. It's hard not to notice that most of these missions are in countries that are plagued by what is sometimes called the resource curse, oil that brings with it conflict and often, in spite of its value, huge income disparities and violence. But those of us who have worked with lots of conflict situations also notice the phenomenon of, let's say, out of the muck come the vegetables or the lotus flowers or diamonds are formed under great pressure. Uh, Ria Yuyada, my next guest, is one of those diamonds, a 28-year-old bright and sassy woman who has known nothing but war and conflict in her native South Sudan. Ria fled uh, South Sudan as a baby and grew up in an IDP, internally displaced person, camp in nearby Uganda, and then returned to South Sudan. And in spite of the challenges of growing up uh, in a refugee camp and the stops and starts, Uh, that South Sudan has gone through in its attempts to reach a more peaceful negotiated agreement, um, she's been able to create an organization called Crown the Woman, a woman-founded and women-led nonprofit, non-governmental, non-political, humanitarian, and national grassroots organization that aims at empowering girls and women to ensure they harness their potential and contribute to nation-building economically, socially, and politically. One of my uh, favorite quotes is from the famous environmentalist uh, John Muir, who said, um, and this is my paraphrase, each time we pick up something in the universe, we find it connected to everything else. While I'm grateful for the oil that has heated my house and runs my car, I'm also aware of its cost in the form of conflict and its impact on the lives of people like Rhea. So it's felt good in my own life to take steps to get off fossil fuels and move to solar and wind as much as I can. Um, It's clearly an important step, not just to create a cleaner world, but a more peaceful one. So I hope you enjoy uh, Rhea basically giving you some real insight into what it's like to be a young woman uh, who's really thoughtful and aware of what's going on in the world and who wants to build peace in her community and country. Ria, thanks for joining us on the Peace Building Podcast. It is a pleasure and honor to have you. I'm especially happy when I get, um, you know, just really interesting young women who are doing great work in the world on this podcast to give them a platform to talk about what the work that they're doing. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I wonder if we could just launch in and you tell, you know, I, I read the bio in the intro, but it'd be great to hear something about you, who you are, where you come from, and how you've gotten here today to this interview. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you so much, Susan, for having me here. And uh, um, I am humbled to be speaking with you today. My name is Ria William Yoyada. I come from South Sudan. And uh, I am a women's human rights and peace activist. And uh, basically what I do is uh, amplify women's voices, speak up on women's issues, and also uh, advocate for peace because I come from South Sudan, a country that has 
that is only eight years old, uh, but has not known peace for a long time. So we, we got our independence from Sudan in 2011. And uh, the excitement that we had is not the same as today. Because as soon as we got independence, we went back to war twice, 2013 and um, 2016. So uh, you can see uh, why we do peace work. Uh, we want to have our country be stable and also be at peace where everyone is happy and where everyone feels at peace uh, in mind, body and spirit, not just uh, within the country, but also within us. So, yeah. I'm a peace activist and a women's rights activist. Could you, um, I mean, I, I think I told you that I have been in South Sudan a couple of times. Um, I mean, I've been in Juba and I've been in Torit, are the two places I've been. I was there with the UN and mm-hmm. so I have some sense of your country. But I wonder, you know, um, gosh, one of the images that so stands out to me when I, I think when I first arrived in Juba was a huge, very dusty, a huge, a huge pile of empty water bottles and a young girl, very, very thin uh, teenage girl sitting nearby just with her head in her hands. And that image just somehow it's has stayed with me of, um, kind of our modern world and some of what's happening for some people on the planet. Um, I wonder if you, you could tell us a bit about your, your background, what life has been like for you, you know, where you come from in South Sudan. Um, just a little bit of background on you would be really super interesting. Oh, wow. I think if I start telling you about me, it would take like the whole day, <laughs> but I'll make it short. So uh, about where I come from in South Sudan, I come from Western Equatoria, um, a small village called Mundri. Um, right now it's Amadi, Amadi State. Uh, I am from an ethnic tribe called the Murus. So I am a Murukodo. But I have spent most of my time in Uganda. So we, we had to escape with my mom and sister to Uganda when I was a few months old to go seek refuge in Uganda. And uh, when we were there, that's where I, I was raised up. That's where I stayed. And um, my mom is Ugandan and uh, uh, my dad is South Sudanese. So my mom met my dad in South Sudan. And so when the tension started uh, in South Sudan, um, my, my mom asked my dad to, so that they leave to Uganda because she felt it was safer. But my dad said, I have never been there. I cannot go with you. Please go with the kids. Take care of yourselves. If God wishes, we'll meet one day. Um, but I've also had conversations with my aunties, and they tell me uh, because of the tensions people are running from to different parts of the world, because I have, I have cousins and nieces all over the world. So the family was that time escaping to Khartoum, uh, Her tomb is in Sudan itself, right? Yeah, in Sudan itself. And so that's how we ended up in Uganda. And um, I, I was having a conversation with my older auntie, and I was asking her, how come you guys went to Khartoum and then to Nairobi and then to other places of the world like Australia, US, and how come my mom and my sister and myself 
didn't join you and she said well we asked your mom to stay but she couldn't stay so she opted for uganda and we couldn't stop her from going but the best we did was pray for her and uh, hope that one day we will meet and uh, my auntie was like i told her you know god has put it this way and i believe the same god one day will make us meet and i, I remember when we were having that conversation i cried because finally we were together and uh, it felt good so yeah i spent my childhood in uganda and it was a tough life of course because we, we moved from one refugee camp to another and then finally we settled in kampala so you were in a refugee camp in uganda yeah. in the beginning we went to uh, a camp near congo called aru in a place called aru um and then we went to ajumani and then we went to arua and then we went to we went to kampala mm-hmm. so it was move 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 and yeah so i i studied in uganda raised in uganda and as soon as i finished my my the first time i finished my high school i came to south sudan with my father he came later and looked for us and found us and that's how he put us to school and then after my high school we came to south sudan and just as you said sudan that you see bottles and dust and ruin that is what exactly so because we came through arua through koboko and then to juba it was a long journey it was very long mm-hmm. we kept on stopping and sleeping by the roadside and then getting into another car and, and hitting the road but the beauty in that was was coming home i was like oh so this is home you know there were no buildings like today you know it was there were just empty land you would see like one hut here and then another hut on the other corner like that but when i came to juba that was around 2004 it was i was like no this is different from uganda you know this is this is like a ruin but what i liked about it was the people you know like my my some of my dad's relatives stayed behind during the crisis and uh, my dad would take me around showing me this is my uncle this is my cousin these are my relatives and when we visited it was different i mean you go into a house and you see people don't have food you see a sign of no food but then they quickly fix for you something to eat they bring for you drinks they slaughter chicken to welcome you it felt good i mean it felt like home and i was like even when it is empty like this this is where i belong this is home but then then i went back to uganda because i had to finish my school and then i i kept on coming back and forth back and forth and finally i settled in 20, 2013 uh, after my university and i went back to my village in mundri and i was volunteering there helping uh IDPs internally displaced people uh encouraging them to pick up peace to think about peace rather than war because if we keep on thinking about war we are going to end up in the internally displaced camp and um we will not ever be home again and yeah so i have been that's what i've been doing so i came back home finally in 2013 and since then i have been in juba and in south sudan Thank you so much for sharing all that. Uh, do you mind me asking you how old you are? I'm 28. You're 28. Wow. Uh and what 
inspired you to actually think about uh, building peace and uh, focusing on that? And then also would love to hear about uh, Crown the Woman, um, the nonprofit that you, uh, that you founded, correct? Yeah. And tell us about that as well. Well, uh, I get my peace inspirations from so many things. As I said, I'm a war child. Uh, my grandmother uh, originally came from Rwanda and Rwanda was known for war. And then she settled in Uganda in an area called Mbarara, and then she moved to Kampala. And then she met her husband, the father to my mother, and then they gave birth to my mother. But then my mother also, there was some crisis in Uganda, Northern Uganda, and my mom ran to Juba and um, to like make ends meet, to struggle and hustle. And then she met my dad. So. I call myself a, a, a war child because uh, I have known war. My mom has known war. My grandmom has known war. But what inspires me to do my work is a lot of things. Growing up away from home separated us from family. I mean, I remember when I was a child and I was in school, I would ask my mom, where is my dad? And my mom would be like, he's dead. Because she, she, she had lost hope. She thought he had died because that the state at which we left was something she would she didn't have hope that people would survive. So I live that my dad is dead. And also um, at some point in school when people would like be asking, where are you from? Oh, I'm from South Sudan. I'm from Sudan. That time it was Sudan. And they would say, but why are you fighting? <laughs> I was a child and I'm like, but I'm not fighting. I'm not killing anyone, you know, but you saw it's those such kind of situations uh, made me start asking, but why are we fighting? So what is happening? So what is fighting? And um, of course, it is tough. And also interacting with different refugee kids, because I, I, I've spent most of my life with so many Sudanese kids. And even hearing what is happening back home, it would leave you frustrated and devastated and things like that. So finally, when I went back to South Sudan, I was like, this is home and we have to fix it. We have to work together to fix it. And so... I go back to South Sudan. I go to Mundri in 2013. I was there 2014. And I was volunteering with this organization called Mundri Relief and Development Association. And uh, I, was, I was in the peace uh, sector. I don't know how it happened, but uh, my director saw potential in me and said, Ria, uh, so ones and foodstuffs and medicines to internally displaced people, but we don't want to just give them food. What do you think you can do? So I said, well, I think I can speak to them. I think I can uh, tell them about peace. I didn't even know what peace was. I was, I was thinking I knew about peace, but I, I actually found out later that I don't know what peace was because everyone defines peace in their own way. So I would go to these internally displaced camps and talk to people about peace. I would tell them, you know what, let us stop fighting. Let us love one another because it's bad to keep on waiting for handouts that come after a long time we may have today. And I remember my experience from that time was this old woman, I think she was about eight years. And uh, as I talked about peace to her, she got up in the crowd and said, my daughter, you are too young. You don't know a thing about peace. You know, you don't know what we have gone through. You don't know how we have suffered. These people have killed us, have killed our children. So she poured out all her heart. 
And that moment I was like, okay, Ria, you're not actually doing peace work <laughs> because you're not convincing these people, you know? And uh, so I stepped aside. I felt hopeless for a moment. But then I got some inner strength and I told her, grandmother, I understand your frustration. I feel your pain. But for how long shall we keep on staying at this internally displaced camp, waiting for people like us to give you food and other services? It's difficult. But if we have peace, we are able to farm. We are able to go back to our houses. We are able to live uh, peacefully with others. And she looked at me and she said, you are right, my daughter. We actually have to live together. We have to forgive one another. And then she said, I bless you. May you continue being our voice. And that for me was, I felt like it was a blessing that has never left me. And it kept on encouraging me to continue doing more. And also I would go to schools, like we would form like school clubs, peace clubs in schools and have one another and just have conversations around war and around peace. But then again, there was a crisis in, the, in, in my village in Mondri and we had to run away. We had to run to Juba. And when I was in Juba, I, I had a chance to attend a workshop that was uh, organized by Play for Peace International. And uh, I was like, I asked my colleagues and I'm like, you know, South Sudan is still a very young country. We, we have not known peace. I mean, we've, we had our country, we had war in 2013. Why don't we start an initiative that promotes peace using games as well? So we, uh, we co-founded Play for Peace South Sudan an initiative that promotes peace in communities using local games. Sorry, using, using what? Local games. Oh, local games. Okay, got it. Like play. So what that means is we would move from one village to another, mm-hmm. from one state to another, picking games within, within the communities and then learn those community games and then share them with other communities. Because one of the biggest challenges we have in South Sudan is... Um, tribalism like one tribe fighting another or one tribe uh being against the other tribe which is also i believe one of the one of the fueling factors for war so we felt like you know what let us let us show that tribes can love one another tribes can appreciate one another so we moved from places like yay juba bibor learning different games and teaching them to, to the communities, the youth and the children. And it was very nice because it was a time that children felt like children again, you know. And uh, when they played, they would laugh, they would tell stories. It was like a moment of children being children again. And also for me, coming from that old woman who told me, my daughter, you are too young. Who are you to tell us about peace? You don't know what we have gone through. And then Playing with children through Play for Peace initiative, it was interesting because if you tell a child dance like this, the child will dance. If you tell the child say A, the child will say A. If you tell the child sing this, the child will sing without even asking or telling you this is not us. And so I, I felt like uh, promoting peace in children and youth was the right thing. And also for me, I felt like it was planting a seed because uh, when you teach a child certain norms and certain ways of life they grow up with, with that uh, whereas the older people like the old woman i met it was difficult to convince her about, about it so yeah we did that uh, we did play for peace and it was very nice then 2016 crisis happened and 
we lost so many of our children. Like the schools where we used to play in, the children were not there anymore. Most of them had been displaced, in, uh, internally displaced camps. Um, the, the teachers were not there because they couldn't teach. They said, well, we're not being paid. Who are we teaching? And so the schools became empty and uh, our activities went down and we also felt a sense of where are the children we used to play with? What happened? And um, we did um, something in 2016 called Solidarity for Hope. So this was, we went to the schools where we used to play and showing the children we're in solidarity with you, even with this war. Uh, we can do this together. We're in this together. And having conversations with children. I remember a child writing a letter, two letters. I still, we still have them somewhere archived. And the children were saying, I want a school where I can play football, where I don't have to hear gunshots. And this coming from a child was devastating. It broke my heart, you know. Uh, we gave them pens, crayons, papers, and books, and we told them to draw what they felt. And you see children drawing like a pregnant woman lying down on the floor with blood all over the woman. And I was like, if a child goes through this, this is trauma, you know, this is trauma. So we need to do a lot. And then um, I, I kept on like my motivation for peace kept on changing and changing. And uh, I was like, what is it that I can do? And so through my work, I was able to be recognized by the, the I was nominated to go for a program with the Noble Women, the Noble Women Initiative in Canada. The Noble Women Initiative? The Noble Women Initiative. It's an organization that was founded by the women who have won the Nobel Prize. Oh, uh, yes, the Nobel Women Initiative. Oh, yes. Okay, got it. Yes. <laughs> yes. So from there, of course, I got more passionate about uh, peace. And I, I learned a lot. And I was like, I have to do more for my country. I have to do more for my country. And then as I got exposed, I also realized that there were fewer South Sudanese women in the outside. Like when I go to like conferences, I would find like myself the only South Sudanese woman. And I'm like, why? I wish to were like 10 South Sudanese women, we could push our, our agenda and raise our issues as South Sudanese women. So we need to do a lot. And so in 2016, I was in Brazil. It was the Nobel women that took me there for a conference in Association of Women in Development. And um, still I found myself the only South Sudanese woman. And I was like, oh, I need to do something for South Sudanese women. I feel like we need to bring South Sudanese women in such platforms and spaces. So I told them, I, I want to start a women's organization. I feel like I want to empower women. I feel like, I feel like if we support women, the children that we are supporting back home that are displaced, they will be able to be supported by their mothers, by their sisters. So the urge kept on pushing me and pushing me. And also, I am, I am a woman. I have seen a lot of struggle. I have seen my mom struggle with mental health. I have seen women die in, while giving birth. And I was like, you know what? I think the best way to empower a child is through empowering women. If we have women in decision-making processes, if we have women leading, if we have women having uh, economic power, then... I think South Sudan would be in a better place. And so immediately I texted a friend of mine and I was like, hey, I want to start a women's organization. Do you want to join me? 
And at first she was like, no, I don't want to, you know, I don't have passion for that. My passion is in, in children. I don't think I can do women's work and things like that. But finally she said yes. And then we got other sisters on board and we started Crown the Woman. And so I decided I'm going to focus. I'm going to give my energies on women, peace and security, on empowering women to, to be agents of change, to be those voices for children that I was playing with that were displaced. And so since then and now I'm focusing on, on women. And for me, I believe that is my piece of peace. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I do my peace work because of different struggles I have gone through that I do not want to see other girls and women go through. I also do my peace work because I feel like it's an obligation for me to do it for others to enjoy that peace that I never enjoyed because I kept on moving from one place to another, from my country to another country, from one house to another because I was looking for comfort. And if South Sudan has peace now, I don't think they would go through what many of us went through. So, Ria, thank you for telling that story. I have so many questions, but uh, of course, we have I try to keep it within our time frame. So, let me ask you: If you could, you tell me simply, because this is a complicated question, but your simple understanding of what the war has been about in South Sudan? Hmm. I do not have a direct answer to that because I feel like. Uh, everyone is I mean there are different layers to our war in South Sudan uh, we have this war that was can I say initiated by political leaders and I can say that war was maybe they were fighting because of power struggles so I can say power struggles and then um, at a grassroots level we have different forms of conflict we have intercommunal conflict, like conflict between farming communities and pastoralist communities. And so I don't have a direct answer to your question, but at a national level, I feel like it's a, it's a power struggle war between uh, different political parties. Before it was the SPLM, then it broke out. It broke up from SPLM, that is the South Sudan people, uh, liberation movement, then it broke out to SPLM in opposition and then to other smaller factions. So I can say it's a political struggle war. And let me ask you, let me ask you this, because I think, you know, our planet is becoming much smaller very quickly and everything is connected to everything else, if you will. Yeah. And I guess the question is, you know, South Sudan does not exist in a vacuum. And uh, and I'm speaking to you as an Ameri as somebody a woman from the United States. Um, in what ways do you see this as being a global conflict, or do you? Well, I, I would say our war is not only a South Sudanese war. I feel like everyone is having a hand in it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, a, a war. If it's only South Sudanese conflict, it would have stopped because. If I look at South Sudan, we are a small country of only about 10 million people. And South Sudan does not manufacture guns, but we have like so many guns and so many weapons in the country. And then I asked myself, where do these guns come from? Who is supplying these guns? 
and uh, when 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 I say it's a global war, then the people who have flying Afghanistan are also responsible for that. Who are like hosting like uh, our conflict or supporting different parties? I think they're also responsible for for that conflict. When I say um, we have like the global community, we have the international community that is supposed to come in. We have different countries like the US, we have different countries like the UK, we have even the UN agencies that are supposed to come in to stop this war. And if they do not play their role in this war that is affecting people, then I feel they're also responsible for this. Because if you cannot promote peace, then you're promoting war. So um, yes, our war is, I feel like now it's becoming a global war because everyone is coming in, in in different angles and different styles. So yeah, I, I'll just stop there and say, I feel like uh, our war is, is beyond South Sudan as well. So I want to go back to women and, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious in your mind, do, do women have as much power as men in South Sudan? I feel we have power, but I feel our power is taken away or hidden somewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can say we have power as women in South Sudan, power to create change. I, uh, why I say this is because I was part of a, just recently concluded his process, the high-level revitalization forum that was uh, convened by IGAD, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development. Uh, and this authority has different countries like Uganda, Kenya, and all these other countries. And uh, I remember when the, the 2013 happened, there was a peace agreement that was signed in 2015. And of course, there were women that struggled to ensure that the peace agreement was signed. But that peace agreement did not last. It did not fall water. In uh, 2016, again, we went back to war. And from there, we organized ourselves as women. Sorry to interrupt. How many women were at the negotiating table for those agreements? Well, uh, I, I am not so certain now with the numbers, but I can say in 2015, there were fewer women. But in 2016, the number increased. I think in, 20, in 2015, they were below 17. And in, 20, in the current one, they are more than 17, more than 21. So what percentage of people were women at the negotiating table? Well, I, I, I have the statistics somewhere, but I'm, I'm losing the count. More or less. Do you have a rough idea? I can say more than, more than 25. More than 25%. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Um, we are talking about the power that women have. And so we women organize ourselves and say, you know what, we've had enough of the war. We want peace. And uh, one thing that is interesting about us women is that war is started, but women then organize themselves and mobilize themselves to bring peace. <laughs> that is power, you know. Mm-hmm. And so um, we, we, we organize ourselves through different different movements and through different coalitions. I was part of this coalition called the South Sudan Women Coalition for Peace. And uh, we had female delegates, we had civil society delegates as well, but I was on the technical side. I was on the technical team supporting the delegates, the women delegates and the civil society delegates in the room. And what we did basically was to support them in all ways that they needed to ensure that the process was on well. At some point we were in corridors uh, lobbying and 
uh, meeting influencers that we felt had some influence towards the process and could fasten the process and in a good way. Uh, at another point, we were in a kitchen. We called it the kitchen cooking ideas and uh, <laughs> <laughs> working together to come up with ideas that would support the process. For example, when documents will be sent in the process, uh, a, a document of about 100 pages and it had to be signed like the next day. And of course, you cannot sign what you're not sure of. So they could send us those documents and we could look into them and we could engender them, try to make it youthful, try to ensure that the document favors every South Sudanese out there. And also we could um, mobilize other South Sudanese who are not in Addis Ababa, who are not in Sudan, and we could uh, share with them what is happening in the peace process. And we could collect their views and ideas and we could share it, feed it back to the delegates in the room. But um, the power I saw in women was um, around 2017, when things were not going on well, women, we organized ourselves and had a silent march. So we marched on the streets of Dubai. It was the first march in South Sudan. And all we wanted was peace. South Sudanese women want peace now, nothing less. Sort of, uh, sort of like what Lema did in Liberia? Yes, yes. And so... With, with that, at least it's also so more inclusion of women. Across tribal lines? Yes, uh, we kept on pushing the number of women. I mean, our, our coalition was diverse in a sense that we, we ensured that we included everyone, every ethnic tribe and process and uh, create change. So after that much, uh, we saw more women being part of the process. Also, we kept on pushing through statements, through um, through letters to include more women. And because of us, I saw that we were, we were able to have, for the first time, a female mediator that is Hannah Tete. So you can see the power that women bring. And uh, I mean, it was also women being part of the process. They spoke from a human point of view. They, they did not well, the parties were talking about percentage or sharing of power, or this party should have this percentage, or this the other party should have that share of the cake. The women were talking about we should stop fighting. Where are we fighting? What are the causes of the war? Stop killing us, stop killing our children, stop killing our husbands. And I think that humanity created some, some sort of change in the process. So I can say, yeah, women have power. And we still have a lot of power to, to change a lot of things and what is happening in South Sudan. Because I remember at some point also, we could speak to these warring parties and tell them, stop fighting, we want peace. And they were not listening. And then the women would cry <laughs> and would like, if you don't do this, we are going to undress, if you don't do this. And they'll be like, oh, it's okay, you are mothers, you know. And even the men will be like, I am a son of a woman, so I promise I'm going to stop fighting. And so I can say, women, we have a lot of power. And when I say sometimes the power is taken away, is because uh, of so many reasons. Uh, for example, when, when, of course, society notices women are getting power, then they start taking it away. They start oppressing you by saying you belong to the kitchen, or you do not have the capacity, or you don't belong here, or you do not hold the gun to fight. It is us, the men, who held the gun to fight. So stay away in the, out of the process. But, yeah. With all these things, it's, it's part of life, and we still will use our power as women to create change in our country. 
So you speak so beautifully. Uh, I'm going to keep our to it just maybe one more question. And maybe you have something else that you really want to say. But it's more of a personal question because I know myself. I mean, I'm a lot older than you. And <laughs> the, you know, the process of actually undoing patriarchy out of my cell structure, it'll be a lifelong process. Of course. That I feel like is worth my own effort, but also I realize every bit of work I do, it actually, I think it frees up other women around me and my and men too, because I have a son who of I... Course. Of course. So I guess it, the, the personal question for you is, if you will, reflect on your own internal struggle that you might ha may or may not have to actually free yourself from any of the ways that the culture has made you feel less than? Well, uh, <laughs> that is a nice question. <laughs> so I, want, I wanted to, to say that patriarchy is entrenched in our society so deep. It's entrenched in not only men, but even women. You know, so we are carriers of patriarchy. Even sometimes we do not notice that we carry patriarchy with us. But I want to to share that personally, I have had struggles. Um, I mean, it's one thing to be a woman in South Sudan, but it's also another to be a young woman in South Sudan who is being vocal and and wants to see change. You know, society expects you to go to school finish school and get married, you know, when you start being vocal or questioning the status quo, then you become, you become a threat to many people and you're, you're, you're told to shut up. You're told women don't speak like that. You're told it's not in our culture for women to do this, you know. Um, recently, we launched a campaign called South Sudanese Women and Girls Are Born to Lead. Uh, in, a, in, in Arabic, we, we call it Nuswan Gidam, meaning women at the forefront. And it's a deliberate campaign because of pains we have felt as women and girls of the nation. Um, and this campaign, Born to Lead on Nuswan Gidam, comes from the pains of some of the things we have had or been told, even in processes such as the peace process we were part of. I remember when, when Addis Ababa and when in Khartoum, when women would say, you know what? We want to see more women at the table. We want to discuss why are we fighting. We want to stop this war. And we want to be part of these leaderships. So we want to be also part of these decision-making processes. And then most men would be like, what do these women think they are? You know, you women, do you think you can lead? Do you think you have the power to hold the guns? <laughs> do you think you have the capacity? You don't, have the, you don't even have the capacity, you know? You... You don't belong here. Some of them would even go as far as saying you belong to the kitchen. And uh, so a film we did around that, you can go on YouTube. If you, if you Google South Sudanese women born to lead, you will see it there. It just talks about, I, I was sharing my uh, sentiment of uh, how we are looked at as women and girls. As a young girl, you're looked at as an income generating uh, person, as a, uh, you grow up ripen for marriage. Whereas if it's a boy, then they'll say, oh, this is going to be the leader. This is going to be the president, which is what your role as a woman is to cook and not to lead. And so we're just basically showing them that what does leadership mean? What does even peace mean? So in this uh, Born to Lead, I, I basically was, was uh, 
showing people that for me, as women, we need to start defining what leadership is. We need to start defining what kind of peace we want. Because if we leave other people, specifically the men, to define for us what peace is, we're never going to have the durable peace that we want. So I took a journey moving around South Sudan in areas like Akobo, in Robek, in Wau, in Juba, speaking to different women and girls. I asked them a few questions like, what does peace mean to you? What does leadership mean to you? And how can we bring peace to our country? And I'm telling you, Susan, I have different definitions for peace now. You know, in the beginning, I told you, I thought I knew what peace was, but I am learning that I don't know what peace is. And for me, peace is defined from each person's view and how they define peace. So when I spoke to different women, I spoke to women, for example, like a group of women who are, who are doing peace work. So they are called the Kobo Women Association for Peace. And these women move from village to village, mobilizing youth, mobilizing people to put down their guns, to stop fighting, and so that they may live together in the community. And I asked these women, how do you do this? Because I don't see any cars in this village. They say sometimes we walk for two days to access another village, you see. And for me, that was, that was look at a woman walking for two days looking for peace, you know, trying to convince people for peace. And I was like, this is something that women bring that is unique. And this one of the women told me, you know what, Ria? If we had women in these processes, since way back, South Sudan would not be at war right now. And that is a statement that I took seriously, you know. I think potentially there's a lot of truth to that statement. Of course. I, I mean, connecting to another group I met, I met a, a group of women who do sand mining. They use their hands to mine sand from the river so that they sell the sand and feed their families. And all these women had cuts in their hands wounds in their hands, in their palms, but they kept on going to the river every day. So I, I had a conversation with them at around 7 a.m. And I told them, why do you keep on doing this? Your hands are bleeding. Your hands are full of wounds. And they said, we are doing this because we want to feed our family. We are doing this because we are taking care of our family. None of the women said we are doing this to get money to take care of ourselves. You see, so for me there, I defined peace and leadership. Leadership is about sacrificing yourself for others, you know? And peace is about having the economic power. I mean, if you cannot feed your family, if, you, if your children cannot eat, then it means your heart is not at peace. It means you're, not, you're restless, and so you cannot have peace. And for me, that was a different definition for peace. And um, we have this thing in South Sudan where girls and women are looked at as income generating people. By that I mean, we have like one of the biggest problems of child marriages. It's that they say more than 52% of girls are not able to celebrate their 18th birthday single. They say by the time they're 18, they're married off with two or three kids. Or, and it is sad because if a young girl is married off at 13 or 14, her dreams are cut short, you know? And so this even affects the quality of economic growth of any country, you know. And uh, when I talked to one of the girls, she was 
she, she got pregnant at 16. And in South Sudan, if you get pregnant, the first thing they say is, you have made the biggest mistake. You have defied the society norm. And so this girl was forced into marriage. And uh, she was forced into marriage. And she said, Dad, I don't want to go to, to marriage. I want to go back to school. And her parents are like, we don't have school fees for you. Go to marriage. And she said, no. So she, she defied that. She started working at a hair salon to raise money to pay her tuition in the university. And now as I speak to you, Susan, she's studying law at the University of Juba. And for me, that was leadership and peace because leadership is about owning responsibilities, saying, if you cannot do this, I can do this. And that was inspiring, not only to me, but to so many other young girls who are being forced into marriage and saying, if, if this young girl Pony can do it, I can also do it. But for me, also peace for this young girl was, don't force me into marriage because if you force me to marriage, I'm not going to be happy. And so my mind, my body, and my spirit will not be at peace. And with all these other things, trust me, I was like, women, we bring a unique, a unique sense of humor, a unique definition of peace and leadership. So yeah, society is trying a lot to push the women away, to sweep women's efforts under the carpet. But we are also working hard to say, we will not allow this to happen. We will ensure that South Sudanese women are part of the process. And so Born to Lead, we are advocating for more women to be included even in the, in the new government, the new transitional government. And we want to ensure that the 35% that was accorded to the women, I mean, we did not beg for the 35%. We worked hard for the 35%. We wanted 50%, but the men said, you want too much, so of course. And we have 35%, but still the feeling is, you know what, women, you cannot do this. You cannot do that because you don't have the capacity, because you don't belong here. But we are saying no. I think, I think uh, globally, women are, are supporting each other to say, nope, <laughs> that's not what we're doing anymore. We actually are really going to support each other to, to get to a place where there really is gender equality. Yes. And I, I can say uh, also reflecting, I feel like patriarchy is, coming back in so many different new forms. Mm. I was telling friends of mine, I was like, I feel like patriarchy is like an amoeba. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it keeps on changing its faces. It keeps on changing its, its ways. And it is changing in a way that, oh, you women want leadership? Okay, we can make you, we can make you our secretaries. Oh, we can make you messengers. Oh, we can make you tea, make for us tea. But when it comes to hardcore decision-making places like Ministry of Defense or Ministry of uh, Finance, then they will say, oh, women, no, you don't belong here. So we have to question that as women as well and also keep on supporting each other, encouraging each other to say, if this person could get into this position, you can as well get into that position. Yeah. So Ria, we, we need to wrap in terms of time. Uh, is there any Final, if people wanted to reach you, uh, how would they reach you? Um, what would be the easiest way? Well, I'm on Twitter. Um, my handle is the only real one. So we can chat on Twitter or my email. Yeah, I'll, I'll share that. I'll share that. Okay. But uh, finally, I just, want, I just want the world to know that uh, those South Sudan we have signed a peace agreement is around 12 that is tomorrow, September. Our peace agreement will be making one one year, and 
we, we still have a long way to go. So the world should not give up on us. I mean, peace is a collective effort. And uh, we all have a responsibility, even the Americans, even the Russians, even the Chinese. Everyone has a responsibility. As long as you're a human being, you have a responsibility to ensure that war does not come back to South Sudan. Beautiful. Well, thank you very, very much for your time and uh, look forward to staying in touch. And really, you're an amazing woman. So keep on keeping on. All righty. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you for joining us on this episode. Please share it with anyone that you think would be interested. Uh, write a review uh, anywhere you get your podcasts, a comment on our blog. And if you'd like, uh, we're hard at work uh, creating good content um, on women negotiation and power. If you'd like to be part of that community, please uh, sign the subscriber list at susancoleman.global. And thanks again for joining us on the Peace Building Podcast.